Well, good morning to each of you, and greetings in Jesus' name, and greetings from the Pilgrim Fellowship congregation back at Stewart's Draft, Virginia. <clears throat> and it's a joy to be here to see this young one, and we know that she is in good company and that you will help bring her up in the ways of God. Thank you for the care and the support you've given to our son and his dear wife as they have gone through the pregnancy and as this little child has come into the world. We're just grateful for your support. Thank you. And it's really special, too, to have uh, uh, Ian and Joan here, who are Johnny's uh, landlords and neighbors, and they have uh, kind of been grandparents to this little one so far. So it's a real uh, privilege to have you all here. So I'm supposed to be bringing a sermon today on the congregation preparing for the ordination. And I have a lot to say, but I know there's a lot going on today, so I'm going to cut straight to the chase and go to what is presumably the first deacon ordination in the New Testament in Acts chapter 6, and we'll begin with a scripture there. Acts chapter 6 <clears throat> And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version from verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And a few comments on this passage before we go further. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> So here the church in its first days had a bit of a problem. There were widows who were of a Greek background who somehow, for one reason or another, were being, uh, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of resources. And so <clears throat> the apostles proposed that the congregation should select from among themselves seven men who were, number one, known to be honest, who were full of the Holy Ghost, number two, and who were full of wisdom, number three. And then the apostles proposed that they should appoint them or anoint them or ordain them. And that's exactly what happened. The, chose, the church chose seven men and presented them to the apostles. And we do not know how they chose them, but they chose them, presented them to the apostles. The apostles prayed and laid hands on them. And then it says that the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied. And even a great many of those Jewish priests became believers. So some observations 
Uh, from this passage, what can we learn from this presumably first deacon ordination? Uh, well, the whole congregation participated. Everybody participated, both the congregation and its leadership. And the work of the church continued to grow because of what happened here in this first uh, deacon ordination because of the delineation of responsibilities. The apostles didn't need to neglect the work of the word and the widows got taken care of because of this organization that happened here. In addition, two of those deacons that were ordained, namely Stephen and Philip, went on to play a prominent role in the church in these next few chapters, Stephen being martyred and Philip going down to Samaria and ministering there and also to that Ethiopian eunuch. And I don't know that we read anything more about the other five men who were ordained here. It seemed like they sort of passed on without further recognition in the church or in the scriptures. But I feel certain that they were faithful to their calling. And it seems clear that these five more obscure men helped uh, the others in their maybe more public responsibilities, and they certainly helped the apostles in their calling. So what happened is these faithful men supported those who were more in the public ministry. And in a similar way, the ordination here of a deacon at Dunmaurice Christian Fellowship will be to support the rest of the leadership. The deacon is generally considered to be in a supporting role. And of course, the other thing that we want to learn from here is that uh, this congregation, by God's grace, in about six weeks or so, will ordain from the congregation, by the congregation, and for the congregation. From within, for the congregation, by the congregation. So let's consider a little bit some uh, common methods of ordaining leadership and I don't want to spend too much time here, but just to recognize that there is more than one way to do it. And we know that many churches, whether they're some of the, like in America, I'm speaking now from this reference point, there are many uh, independent evangelical churches, or there are churches who are part of a denominational structure who provide training for potential candidates, and maybe the candidates are in training, and then sometime during their time of seminary, uh, they make a decision as to which church they will serve in, or maybe after the graduation, and then they come to a particular church, and maybe the elders or the membership or a combination of the board of deacons, elders, membership, they all work together, and there's a search committee, and they find this candidate that's in training, they invite him, there's a review, there's an evaluation, maybe a pulpit assignment, and at the end of all that, or maybe there's a job description and discussion of wages and, and there's a contract signed and they either hire him or don't hire him. If they hire him, there's generally a contractual agreement. And that's how it's done and it can be a good way. And um, some other uh, denominations, like with, with more denominational structure, uh, they may uh, train their pastors in a seminary and then the, the church uh, presbytery appoints uh, a, a candidate after thorough review and after uh, thorough investigation and examination, and they appoint him to a particular post somewhere in the denomination, and that's often how it's done. We just want to recognize that there are many ways of selecting and ordaining leadership. 
Now, it's practiced by many Anabaptist churches. Here, here's how it is often done for those who may not be quite as familiar with the way our type of churches often do it. So the congregation as a whole, number one, prayerfully considers the qualifications for leadership as established by Jesus and the apostles. The whole congregation, all the membership is involved, and we try to study what Jesus taught about leadership in the Gospels and what the apostles taught. And they accordingly nominate a brother or brothers who most nearly meet these qualifications. And of course, some of those scriptures are, and I wish I'd have to time to um, put them up on an overhead or something, but I'll just give them to you in case you want to take note of some of these scriptures and study them. Scriptures that give us the qualifications of leadership. And of course, the main one is the whole, all the Gospels, because in the Gospels, we have Jesus giving us the perfect example of servant leadership. So certainly we should scan or read through the Gospels in this next while and consider Jesus' example. And he gives us some very specific teaching on servant leadership in scriptures like Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, and Mark chapter 10, 30 to 35. So there we have all the teachings of Jesus, some specific passages. And of course, we also have all the pastoral epistles, the, the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, maybe Philemon. And we can study those and learn about the qualifications of leadership, and especially we have 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And specifically now for the deacon ordination, we have uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 3, which we've read. And 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 speaks specifically to the responsibility of deacon. And please take note that as opposed to the office of elder or bishop, the qualifications for deacon here in the first Timothy chapter 3, 8 to 13, as the apostle Paul gave them, also include qualifications for the wife of a deacon. And I don't know why he doesn't give qualifications for the elder, but he does give for the wife of the deacon in one verse. So that's part of the consideration for the congregation here. Consider um, qualifications for the wife of a deacon. So as the congregation in our particular tradition considers this ordination, things like moral integrity, a servant's heart, faithfulness, humility, and the ability to work well with others are considered prime qualities for leadership. And the candidates are selected by vote from within the congregation by the members of the particular congregation. And the number of votes to qualify for a candidate for the nomination uh, those number of votes are usually agreed upon. I'm assuming Brother Anthony is going to take care of this. The number of votes is agreed upon prior to the ordination by the congregation and its leadership. And we recognize that formal training can be an advantage, uh, but generally candidates uh, do not have formal training prior to being ordained in our tradition. And to monitor the procedures and maintain this impeccable integrity of the process throughout the process, uh, ministers from other congregations with no vested interest are asked to help with the ordination process at every level. And then after the congregation has voted uh, and selected its nominee or nominees, uh, and before the ordination, the candidates are interviewed, they are reviewed, and they are examined by the local ministers while visiting ministers are present. And it's a good idea, I think, for the, the ministry who's doing this examination to make known to the congregation the questions or the type of questions that they're going to be asking the candidates. 
just for input. Uh, that's what we've done. So, okay. Um, it may be that more than one brother will be selected by the congregation to be a nominee. And at that point, in our tradition, we tend to do something unusual. And that is we use the, uh, the lot as it was used in Acts chapter 1 and also in the Old Testament. So we could talk about the pros and cons of this particular um, process that we use. And I wanted to touch on a number of them if, if we have the time here. There's some pros and there are also no doubt some cons to the process, to the tradition that we have. And some of the pros might be that each member of the congregation contributes to this process by praying about and by considering the qualifications and then carefully selecting a nominee to turn in when the vote, uh, when it's time to vote. There, and by, because the whole, pro, the, the whole congregation is involved in the process, it, it likely reduces the possibility of abuse of power by the leadership. And also, the wisdom of the entire congregation is consulted, those who actually know the brother, not just some uh, presbytery off somewhere in uh, the headquarters, not only the local elders either, but the entire congregation, the wisdom of the entire congregation is consulted. And then if the congregation seeks the face of God through prayer and consideration of the biblical qualifications, suitable candidates are usually found from within the local congregation, and often more than one candidate is chosen. And then also, uh, through the use of the lot, which we want to talk about in some detail later on, through the use of the lot, a God is given the opportunity to intervene in a sort of sacramental kind of way if he wishes to do so. We give him that opportunity. And the lot can settle the selection process without politics or abuse of power because we make a selection in that way. No contractual agreement is signed in our tradition. The brother volunteers his time and he serves as a volunteer and continues to support his family by working with his own hands, typically. And this generally works best where there's a plurality, plurality of leadership and eldership because uh, one man uh, doing all this and still working with his own hands to provide for his family would certainly be overworked. And we're often overworked the way it is, even with a plurality of leadership. But many congregations supplement uh, their leaders' income, because they're working with their own hands, providing for their own support and their family's support, they supplement um, that income by occasionally lifting an offering uh, for the leadership of the church. All right, um, the other thing that happens um, in our tradition is that the congregation actually has authority over its ministry in a congregational sort of way because the congregation chooses that minister and they choose the body of ministry from among themselves. Therefore, the congregation has authority over its ministers as a congregation. And this means that since they selected the brother from among them, it means that down the road, should hidden sin be discovered in the ordained brother's life or things like moral failure, the congregation does have the authority 
as a congregation to suspend the leadership of the responsibilities given to this brother or to disqualify him entirely. And that does happen occasionally. Sadly, it does happen. So some of the cons, it may be that the, that the congregation may not always be as discerning as they could be, and a brother who is not qualified may be nominated. I think I have seen that happen. I was in a situation one time as one of the leaders and a person was nominated, a brother was nominated, relatively new to the community. The interviews revealed some problems. There were concerns about financial problems and also there were some concerns about marriage. But the leadership of which I was a part at that time did not consider those concerns to be great enough to warrant him being dismissed from nomination. He was nominated, we interviewed him, and he went on, made it through the, through the interview process and was ordained by lot. But it did not turn out well because he was eventually, eventually disqualified himself by a moral failure. And that was a very sad thing, and I am burdened with that because I carry part of that responsibility for putting him and the church through that very unfortunate thing. So I say it's very important that the congregation uh, thoroughly studies the scriptures, considers the matter, prayerfully considers candidates, and that the leadership uh, does the review and examination process well and takes concerns into consideration that come. So we say that it's important that we recognize that there's more than one right way to do it, and um, this is our way of doing it, and it has worked for, for us uh, in most cases with an occasional uh, failure, as I mentioned. All right, so now let's go to um, thinking about the use of the lot as a means of selection. I'm sure that there are people here who have real questions or just have, just have some questions about this means of selection. And I'm one of those that has at times uh, had my own questions. But let's go to, again, the book of Acts and the early church and take a look at Acts chapter 1 in verse 15. And then we'll jump to 21 through 26. And we're at Acts chapter 1 verse 15, and again I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and in those days Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120, and I was blessed by Brother Simon uh, in our Sunday school class in that he read this verse and said, hey, ended up with 120 in the upper room after maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands, or even as many as 100,000 had been fascinated with this master who had ridden into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week. And here now, after um, those, that season and after many days, uh, we're down to 120 in the upper room. And Peter got up, and then we'll skip over some of that gruesome material there about Judas, and we'll go over to verse 21. <clears throat> so one of the men... Pardon me. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, 
one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, know who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So here we have uh, the use of the lot. There were two men that were selected from among the congregation, and they needed one of them. How were they going to decide which one of them should take the place of Judas? And they used the method of the lot. They selected Matthias through the use of the lot. So, okay, what are some considerations concerning the use of the lot? This seems like a a rather unusual method, and I don't think there are that many churches today in modern Christianity who use this method. So what are some considerations? Number one, is it an Old Testament practice? Well, It was indeed practiced in the Old Testament on a number of occasions, like it was used to discover the perpetrator there at the defeat of Israel at Ai, and Achan was found to be the man who had hidden the stuff in his tent. It was used to distribute or allocate the land among the tribes of Israel, and there are other occasions when the lot was used in the Old Testament. So... There are, there, there's that consideration, uh, but if I turn to this book from which we've just read, it says at the beginning of that book, the Acts of the Apostles, and that doesn't sound quite like the Old Testament, does it? What happened in that book, except for some events in chapter 1, happened after Jesus' birth, his ministry, his life, his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. And was the Acts chapter 1 ordination an Old Testament ordination? Well, I say it's clear that it was a pre-Pentecost ordination, but I wouldn't call it an Old Testament ordination. So, number two is the fact that the the use of the lot was pre-Pentecost. It was never found again in the New Testament after this occasion. It was never found, it was never described as being used at least, is the fact that it is pre-Pentecost and the fact that it was Peter's idea. Is that a problem? Well, Peter suggested it. It's true. And it's true that it happened before Acts chapter 2 and when the Holy Spirit came. And it's true that whenever Peter opens his mouth, sometimes you wonder what he's going to say. It's like some of us here, right? Um... And it's true that if you go to Mark chapter uh, 9, there at the transfiguration, it says there that he said, not knowing what to say. (coughs) Does that describe some of us sometimes? We say, because we don't know what to say, but we still go ahead and say it. And Peter got up here in Acts chapter 1, and he proposed that they select two men to replace Judas. So, was Peter led by the Spirit in Acts 1, 
or was Peter moving in the flesh? That's the question. It's a legitimate question. We do well to explore it. And I've personally wrestled with some of these questions, particularly after a dear old brother in my congregation who's no longer with us. By the grace of God, he's with, his, with Christ now. But he was a little bit crotchety sometimes and a little bit disagreeable. Some of you would know who he was. And um, he was adamant about this. He said he was not in favor of um, using the lot. He said it's Old Testament. It was before the Spirit came, and it was Peter. And to him, that ruled it out. <clears throat> well, what about that? My own personal wrestling led me to, to think about these questions seriously, because this was a brother that I, I had some respect for. But are we prepared to say that the Spirit of God was not in the upper room? Are we prepared to say that the Spirit of God could not have guided Peter? Are we prepared to say that Peter acted in the flesh? I'm not prepared to say any of those things because the Spirit of God was present with people in the Old Testament and Peter was with the Master. He knew him personally and he, he was closer to Christ than I am. What settled it for me was uh, those apostles, when they prayed, they said, Thou, Lord, knowest which the hearts of all men show whether of these two you've chosen. They believed that God would show them through the use of the lot which of these two brothers should be ordained. And I thought to myself, if those disciples of Christ who were so close to their master, if they could believe that, could I believe it? And I said, well, yes, of course. I can believe that. And another um, thing that clinched it for me that ordaining by the use of the lot is a legitimate way. If you go to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6 in verse 2. This is after Matthias had now been ordained by the use of the lot. And it says in Acts chapter 6 verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You know something? They were back to 12. In Acts chapter 1, prior to that ordination, they were at 11. Now they were at 12, and Matthias here is recognized as a legitimate apostle having replaced Judas. And in that sense, we see that in the New Testament, Post-Pentecost, he was recognized as being legitimately ordained by the use of the lot as one of those 12 apostles. So sorry, my dear old brother, I have, I have come to my own conclusions on this now. <clears throat> so my personal experience with the lot, I went through it three times. Uh, once I was chosen and twice I was not chosen. And all those times I was satisfied that the will of God was done. Now let's, let's uh, talk about some views regarding the use of the lot. And I have three particular views that we, we could consider here. And one I will call the uh, Urim and Thummim view. Now we remember in the Old Testament, they had this particular way of discerning the will of God. There must have been something on the breastplate of the priest. It's very mysterious. 
but God directly revealed his will through the miraculous movement or something of this object or these objects called the Urim and the Thummim. And this is the view that God reaches down in a miraculous, sacramental sort of way, intervening in the physical world to make his will known. And God will make sure in this view that the man he has chosen will get the right book, even if he has to miraculously move the paper from one book to another or something like that. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is a view that we could call the roll the dice view. And this is all about mathematical odds. There are th if there are three men and the three books, then there's a 33 and one third uh, percent chance that any one of those three men will choose the book. If there are two men and two books, there's a 50% chance that one of those two men will choose a book. <clears throat> there's a third view that I'd like to present that I might call the sanctified selection view. And it's somewhere between the two views above. And it holds to the view that if the idea that if the congregation has done its work well, if it has prayerfully considered the teachings of Jesus and the apostles on leadership, if it has carefully considered the example of Jesus himself, if there's been much time spent in prayer, self-examination, and also looking out among the congregation. And now if the congregation selects two or more men under those considerations, they're all qualified. And it doesn't mean that the church is divided if you have two or more uh, men selected as candidate. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that they are, they're blessed with more than one brother who's qualified. And it certainly wouldn't surprise me if this congregation would experience that. And the sanctified selection view makes use of a certain understanding of the will of God. And one understanding of God's will that is based on, kind of based on Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I think, is that God's will is like a bullseye in the middle of a target. And that's the, among the good, uh, among the acceptable, good, and perfect will of God, King James, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The bullseye, the perfect will of God, that's the bullseye. And um, that, that's one understanding. But the sanctified selection view holds that God's will can be an area of freedom in which God's people can exercise godly wisdom and be within his good, acceptable, and perfect will, even as they exercise some human free will within an area of freedom that God has provided. The will of God is not just some bullseye in the middle of the target, but an area of freedom. And the sanctified selection view kind of holds that if John and Bob or John, Bob, and Joe are chosen as candidates, each brother in his own way will be qualified and can be ordained in the will of God. But if we just need one brother among those qualified brothers, we still have to make a selection that is non-political in every way. Because we don't believe in the, the political electioneering in this process. It's not about campaigning to get the job. It needs to be non-political. And here, 
the biblical method of the lot can be used to make a sanctified selection. And if God wants to intervene in a miraculous, sacramental sort of way, he's free to do so, and we can pray that he will do so. And if God wants to give an inner impression to one or more of the brothers as to which book to choose, he can certainly do so, and we can pray that he will do so. So now, preparing for the ordination, just a few practical pointers here, and I will say it in closing, and I mean that term, in closing, uh, in the preacher's sort of way, meaning that he's still got a lot to say. But I'll, <laughs> I'll try to uh, be brief here. Preparing for the ordination. <clears throat> Every brother or sister here in this congregation should read over and meditate on the relevant New Testament scriptures. I've given them. You'll find them yourself for qualification. And the brothers particularly uh, should meditate personally on those qualifications. And special attention should be given to Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, since this is a deacon ordination. And we should compare our lives against those scriptures. Men who are members and their wives who are members we should give consideration to those scriptures, and we should measure up our lives against those scriptures. I think that this time of ordination is often a time of revival within the church as the brothers and sisters go deep into the word of God and come to a place of surrender and repentance. So pray over the relevant scriptures now as you think about your selection and, and ask God to bring a particular brother to mind who would, who would best meet the qualifications and who would be a wise choice for the church. And I suggest that you make this a daily practice between now and then to really be praying about your selection. And since the brother will be chosen from among this congregation, it is important that the brother and his wife should be well known by the congregation. And we remember an ordination in this tradition as I said earlier, is not at all about campaigning or electioneering. It's not about trying to get a certain man ordained or trying to influence the outcome in a subtle way. It's not about that at all. So members and non-members should be very careful not to try to do the work of Scripture and the, the work of the Spirit of God by talking about the pros and cons of certain brothers with other members. We should not do that, dear brothers and sisters. Of course, you know, spouses should be free to talk to their spouse about, um, uh, to, about these matters. And those without spouses, those members who are without spouses, should be free to talk to a, another trusted brother or sister for counsel. And for some, that might be parents or an older brother or sister in the church. But if there is counsel sought, it's always in the context of confidentiality and for the sake of counsel, not for the sake of electioneering. Every member that is in good standing will have his or her own opportunity to contribute to the vote, to the ordination, by their vote and by prayer. Please refrain from trying to influence it in other ways. Now I was going to go into um, maybe some lessons from an ordination that I remember from 50 years ago. There was an ordination, a minister ordination. My dad was one of the nominees. I was like eight years old. And uh, there were other men chosen to be nominated. And they were lined up in the front of the church and this, the same number of books were lined up on the table. And those men got up one by one when the time came 
and they selected their books. And in one of those books was a paper which would forever change the life of one of those men. And those moments are actually, they're quite, they're pregnant with kind of suspense and uh, there's a little bit of tension in the air at those times. And, you know, I was eight years old or so and I really wanted my dad to be ordained as minister at that time. I was not a voting member, but I was still rooting for my dad. And uh, so all the men had chosen their books and they sat down and then the bishop comes along and he takes the book from each one of those men sitting there and he opens the book and turns to the right page to see if the lot is there. And as he came closer to my dad, you know, my heart was kind of pounding. And, but before he got to my dad, he opened Dave Hirschberger's book and there it was. And I remember two things about that moment 50 years ago. And one was my profound disappointment that it wasn't my dad. <laughs> I see the wisdom in it now. Uh, the other thing was Dave Hirschberger's response. He was a, a, a farmer with big rough hands, not eloquent by any stretch of the imagination, and not a very scholarly person. And I'm sure he felt supremely unqualified. And he let out a loud cry right there. Oh, I'll never forget that. I think the weight of the responsibility and the sense of his own inability really weighed on him there. And he cried out. I'll never forget that. But you know, I think we can learn from that, dear brother. I'll never forget David Hirschberger either. He became my favorite minister. He was never that eloquent, but he learned to preach. And he could tell stories from the Bible in a way that really grabbed your heart. And sometimes he would preach with tears coming down his face. You could just feel his empathy and his love for the church. And I knew he cared about me personally. So I really loved him as a minister. And I think from Dave Hershberger, we can learn something about this proper sense of need, our own inability. We can't do it. This job is too big for us. And, but with God's help, we can do it. The brother who is chosen will by, by grace be able uh, to take up this responsibility. We remember that where responsibility abounds, grace does much more abound. And I think in his example, we can learn that humility and love for God and for the church. Humility, love for God and the church are primary qualifications. It's nice to have a leader who, in this case, will be a deacon and will also be helping with the preaching, I understand, and other leadership responsibilities. It's nice to have a leader who's well-spoken and who loves the Lord and the people. But the main thing is humility and the love of God. And Dave Hirschberger had them both. And he became a pretty good speaker, too, with practice. So I want to encourage all of you to um, take this seriously. But, but should I say, don't take it too seriously. I mean, life goes on. And the brother will enable, God will enable the brother who is chosen. So I close with the words of Paul. He said in Acts chapter 20, he said, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Remember, this is about Jesus who died on the cross for the church, who's coming back for the church. This is about him. This is about caring for the flock. 
And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. May God bless you real good. We love you all, and by God's grace, we'll be back.